Welcome to Surviving Society. A political podcast. Exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists. We platform discussions between knowledge sharers, creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear. Political education for the masses. Grounded in history, theory and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. My name is Dr. Chantel Jessica Lewis, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Nicholas Cole, who is a senior research fellow at Pembroke College, where he runs the Quill Project, which looks at the international history of constitutional law in the UK, USA, India, Australia, France. Have I missed any, Nicholas? so many countries. Nicholas is very much interested in digital technologies and scholarship and the inclusion of students from non-elite institutions in research and scholarship. Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Now, listeners, if you don't know already, I am actually currently sat in my workplace. I am also part of Pembroke College um, here with Nicholas. So Nicholas is also a colleague of mine. This is very exciting to be in conversation um, with someone that, yeah, I work with. What is really interesting about scholars like Nicholas for me is the expertise around areas that are so central to how we live and are governed as citizens. That expertise, and it is very much an an expertise, is something that not a lot of us really understand or know about, yet it is so central to how we live. And the many conversations that Nicholas and I have had is very much focused on political education. So don't worry at all if you don't know what a constitution is. We are going to learn about what a constitution is today. But once we do learn, we can harness this knowledge to have a better understanding of how elections work. Because listeners will know if you've heard me talk over the years, I'm a bit of a sucker for elections. Um, I love, love the detail of elections. Don't tend to have be on the winning side of elections. But um, <laughs> anyway, so Nicholas, if you were going to explain in layman's terms what a constitution is how would we how would we go about that it's the set of arrangements by which we have agreed to make decisions so how do we distribute um power is one way of thinking about it but but maybe another way of putting it is well before we can collectively make a decision maybe we have to have some rules about how that decision is to be made you know you can't you can't just stand up in in the middle of a square somewhere and declare a law you have to have a process to declare a law you have to say well who gets to have an opinion Mm. you know what are what are the rules so that if somebody tells me such and such is the law or so and so has won a political office how how do i know whether that's correct so so the, the constitution is the set of rules that govern the rest of politics and sometimes we might think of those rules as just saying who is in office and who is not in office or what their powers are if they're in office, what can they do and what can they not do. And sometimes we might think of that constitution as protecting rights by saying these things are not um, legitimate decisions that, say, a legislative body can take. So we might, we might choose to exclude some types of decisions from the ordinary 
uh, everyday politics. We might say, you know, freedom of speech is so important that if we're going to interfere with that, we will have special procedures to deal with interfering with freedom of speech, uh, for example. And, and different societies, different states, have different ways of making those rules. So in Britain, we don't have a single written constitutional text. We have a lot of law about how elections should function and what the role of the various ministers are. And we have laws about what the king must and must not do. Uh, read it, read it, uh, your, your listeners might uh, remember that um, when Charles III became king, there was a meeting of the Privy Council, very exciting uh, to be televised for the first time. Um, and the Privy Council, first of all, made a formal declaration to itself that they were satisfied that Elizabeth had died. And then they went through into the next room and they they said to Charles, uh, we, the Privy Council, have determined that your mother has died and you are now king. And then the very next thing that happened was that Charles sat at a desk and signed a set of proclamations that he was required by law and declarations that he was required by law mm. to do. So we do actually have quite a bit of law in the UK, but we don't have a, a single written text. Why don't we have a constitution? Um, I, I think because of when the British state became the British state uh, in the in the sort of modern form. I mean, we might trace the sort of origins of the of, of, of the modern British state maybe to the Glorious Revolution in 1688. And Parliament did at that time pass a series of laws about the monarchy and about the distribution of power, but they, they weren't in the business of limiting their own power. Contrast that with America uh, a century later, um, becoming independent from Britain and having to start, in a sense, from scratch as a new nation, and this is often the experience of other sort of post-colonial states as well, they have to say what the law is. They can't just rely on sort of inherited traditions. And so, so they so write just, a text. So just to be clear, so Brit Britain doesn't have a constitution if we're thinking about the time in which Britain becomes its modern iteration because the people that were in quote unquote in power didn't really want to have power up for discussion well, or or the laws up for the, well, it how we lived up for discussion it didn't seem at that moment necessary to write a single text mm. describing in full the distribution of power because many of the many of the things in that moment that um, parliament wanted to do were to in a way, restore previous customs or to make sure that particular situations couldn't arise again. Mm. But there wasn't the same impetus because Britain imagined itself to be a state that in its imagination stretched back to time immemorial. Mm. There wasn't this impetus to write a constitution. It's very different in, um, say, America in 1776, where they've become independent from Britain and they need to say, well, who is going to have power and what is their authority going to be? Or, say, India in 1946 becoming independent. And suddenly there's this question of, well, how is power going to be distributed in the state? And there's a real impetus then to have a process to write a constitution. Um, whereas in Britain, 
Parliament already existed in 1688. The question was much more, um, you know, what's gone wrong and how do we fix that, which is a much smaller question than we're starting a newly sovereign state. What should our rules be? But almost every state that's come into being since the 18th century has had to write a constitutional text. So Britain looks like an outlier, perhaps, um, for not having gone through that process. But people in the 18th century, or the 17th century for that matter, could still talk about the English constitution, the British constitution, and what they meant was the norms of society and the collection of laws that we have to enforce those norms. They just didn't think they needed to codify them in a, in a constitutional text. So if one were being really picky, one would say Britain does have a constitution, it just doesn't have a single codified constitutional text. But we do all know, don't we, that you know it wouldn't be legitimate for certain things to happen. So mm -hmm. it does make sense to say it would be unconstitutional for there not to be an election in mm -hmm. 18 months. And we wouldn't imagine that simply as a breach of the law, we would also imagine it as a breach of a constitutional norm. That's so interesting. And like, even as you just explained that then, I do feel like I do have an understanding of what, although I don't know um, English law in detail, like what you would mean by a kind of constitution here in Britain. I think that makes sense. Like, do I agree with everything within that? That's up for debate, isn't it? But it, I guess, yeah, it does make sense that we do have a kind of framework of what the quote unquote rules or ch checks and balances are. Mm, absolutely. So with regards to how we enter or how we kind of live now within modern society, do you feel like there is gonna be more, I mean, obviously one of your specialisms is in digital technology, more scope for the constitution within the UK to rapidly change? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've, we've gone through what is in reality an enormous constitutional change with Brexit. Yes. Because we have, we have regained theoretical sovereignty mm -hmm. over a whole range of issues. And in fact, the, the way parts of the United Kingdom relate to each other has changed simply through the act of leaving. And of course, this is most obvious in the case of Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. um, but it also affects the sort of English relationship with Scotland, um, to the extent that European Union funding went to different English regions. It, it, it also affects politics in slightly more subtle ways as well. So in a way, we've just been through an enormous constitutional change. How could I forget about Brexit? I can't believe I was just like, digital, know, digital, this is like, Brexit! Yep. I think, as a, well, as a Remainer, I think I've kind of like switched off to it. But also, as a Remainer that didn't necessarily rate some of the arguments of the mainstream Remainers, I think I've kind of become a bit disillusioned by it. And also, having a very, very basic training in some of the EU um, regulations and kind of benefits... I know, I have a, I have an understanding of how much we don't have now, and I think I've kind of switched off to it a little bit. I think that's what happened there. Well, you raise, a, you raise in all of that a really interesting and subtle point, which is we have regained a theoretical sovereignty yeah, I've noticed in a lot of areas. Yeah. But of course, our, our capacity to actually legislate in a lot of these areas 
if we wish to join various trade treaties around the world is actually going to be much diminished. Mm. We might discover that sort of negotiating as uh, a single power as opposed to part of the European Union bloc will mean that we actually have to make compromises in a lot of areas that we might not have wished to Mm. or wouldn't have been forced to do if we were part of the European Union. So it's a really complicated um, issue. But but of course, the, the enormous constitutional change is that Parliament has a freedom and therefore the government has a freedom to legislate across a whole um, a sort of sphere of areas that before 2016 it, it, it simply couldn't have done. So that's an enormous change. And could you give some examples of those changes? Um, a lot to do with management of the economy, mm. everything from the way we set uh, tax, for example, um, things that affect people's lives like the European Working Time Directive and those kinds of harmonizations. You know, we didn't have freedom to legislate in those sorts of areas. Um, We didn't have freedom to sign treaties with other countries that affect what goods and services can be sold by or sold to Britain. Um, European Union law protected um, digital privacy in particular ways that uh, we're now not bound by. Um, So even if these weren't necessarily constitutional rights, these were areas of competence that were given to the European Union in order to manage a European-wide economy. And of course, economies touch most areas of life. Um, And now we have a theoretical freedom to legislate in those areas. You know, Nicholas, like what you've just said, yeah, it reminds me of when we first started Surviving Society and one of the reasons why we did like you're, I just basically, I basically just said to you, can you name me some of the things that are going to change from Brexit? And you very clearly just listed out like six, six key things. And that just isn't something that ever happens on the, in the media. Like, and our kind of frustration at Surviving Society was that academics or scholars, scholars do have the knowledge base to explain to people very simply what something is. And it's so rare that we actually get the space to do that because our answers aren't as sexy or aren't as kind of inflammatory. And like where we've got to, and I think this kind of links back to what you were saying about the um, the constitution here in Britain, that kind of lack, the lack of constitution, but also a lack of understanding of how things work in terms of political education has meant that we have the, cu- the current trans- transformation of our constitution now. Could you say that those things are linked? Oh, absolutely. Um, let me give you a very small silver lining Go on. about Brexit. It is a very, very, very small silver lining. <laughs> I don't expect I don't expect it to make everything better. Go on. Um, but I think let's take heart in 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 this. By leaving the European Union it should now be much clearer where decisions are being taken. Yes. There was, a, there was a game that British governments used to play where they would, as you know, go to the Council of Ministers and they would argue for policies that would be written up in a way... I mean, I work on the records of decision-making bodies uh, as my day job, and even I find the way the European Union publishes its minutes and presents them to be... 
so obscure as to be almost deliberate. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, Britain would, and Britain would go and argue for policies. Uh, and then they wouldn't really be reported on. And then those same ministers would come back to Parliament and rail against them. And it would be very, it would be very, very difficult sometimes to know um, where a decision had really been taken and whether, you know, whether ministers were actually being open with the British people about the fact that maybe Britain was advocating for a policy that they were also in public speaking against. So I, I think there is at least now clarity Mm. That if you if you don't like economic policy in the UK, if you don't like the laws around labour or housing or any of the other areas of life that you might have an op- op- opinion about, um, it's now very clear where responsibility lies. Because British politicians cannot any longer say, well, we'd love to help, but really this is about it. A European Union issue. Now that's a very small yeah. silver lining, but I think it is really important that we don't just throw up our hands and yeah. and 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 say you know everything's terrible. I think I think it's important that people now seize the opportunity to say, well, if we are going to um, domesticate a lot of decision making that we've uh, domesticated, that. Well, we must now hold our politicians and our civil servants and our bureaucracies to account for actually um, doing things that um, the, the people of the country want and not let them hide behind um, as, they, as they used to other institutions. That's such a good point. And I think that that's why when you that's why I called myself a reluctant remainer, because they're so many issues with the organi- the, the way the EU is organised and like you find yourself like oh god I can't believe I've got to defend this institution that are actually like well just speak for myself um, have been involved in some really awful policies concerning how like borders and citizenship and migration is um, handled allocated all those things so I really like that kind of silver lining and also like even if things are really bad or we are aren't happy with decisions as you say like transparency is important and it's important for political education but I guess I'm also kind of nervous slash reluctant even around transparency because it feels like even here in britain that there being that the transparency is almost something that they are able to kind of lean on now like okay well this is what we're going to do does that make sense Mm. yes i mean uh how many public consultations do people really have trust in as anything more than a sort of box ticking exercise at this point you know do we do we insist that you know those kinds of exercises really bear fruit? I'm not sure. Um, you said something else uh, a moment ago, which was about the press. Yeah. The 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 press in Britain um, talks down to its readership. Yes. And does not tell them what is going on in Parliament. Uh, does not tell them how decisions are being taken does not provide people with the information they need to be engaged citizens. Um, Presses in other countries, I think, do a better job, at least 
sometimes, you know, mm. these things ebb and flow. Mm. But I would challenge any of your readers mm. to look at a, at a rack of newspapers, if people still pass racks of newspapers, mm. or look at the front pages of um, major news sites in the UK, UK and ask themselves, how, how would I actually know what politicians are up to just through reading these news sources? Um, newspapers in the UK love to report outrage that a thing has happened, mm. but are very reluctant to do the slightly more boring work of saying, this policy is being formulated at the moment, mm. and maybe this is a good time to have inputs into that policy. I mean, you, you have to be a fairly strange sort of um, policy geek mm. to really sort of understand what's going on in politics mm. at any at any particular moment, in spite of the fact that, you know, it's it's in a way never been easier to yeah. track bills in Parliament and, you know, the, the um, parliamentary website um, should give journalists the kind of material they need to actually write some pretty excellent stories about how policy is being shaped. But newspapers don't think that's going to sell so they don't distill it for their readership. I'm really glad you just brought up the press there, Nicholas, because just thinking, again, thinking about the Constitution, thinking about the transformation we're going through, but also thinking about the last kind of 30 years of the press. Like, And obviously, as a legal scholar, your work on kind of separation of powers, like how checks and balances um, are kept in place, how we keep a democracy... Would you say that in terms of the power that the media has, that we are, that we have sleepwalked into a territory which challenges the separation of powers? I think people worry, don't they, about um, ownership of media? I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting. That there's a long tradition in Britain, isn't there, of having some sort of collective oversight of the ownership of particular kinds of media. There's, a, there's even been a, a moral test is this person a fit and proper person to own media in particular ways? We worry about that rather less. Of course, we've worried in recent years about deliberate attempts to set up um, uh, forms of media, uh, whether they be sort of broadcasting or in print or online, that deliberately have a particular political agenda. Mm-hmm. And we've worried about that. I'm not sure all of those have necessarily been successful. Uh, so maybe we, we don't need to worry about that. But there, there has been a shift. I, I mean, I think one of the things to bemoan, though, is just that we, we live in the information age. We, yes. live, it, we live in an age when the, the, the people who were sort of building the Internet in the 80s and 90s really imagined that political debate would be elevated because information would be so freely available. And that, and that this would be a hugely democratizing um, thing, that, that people had access to information that enabled them to hold politicians to account, that enabled them to express their views on things. I, I think a question we might all ask ourselves as we use this technology to do almost everything except that mm. is, well, what happened to that vision? What happened? Because it has never been easier to contact anybody you want to contact find out any piece of information you want to find out the the barriers to knowledge have really come down in a way that is astonishing and yet somehow 
the news media has also dumbed down its coverage, increasingly focuses on emotional outrage more than policy or, or these other things. We don't live in the sort of informed democratic age that a lot of people imagined in the 80s and 90s would be the inevitable consequence of near universal internet access. I really like that kind of hopeful analysis there, Nicholas, of yeah the news of the news media and digital digital technologies and the information age. And I think actually what you've said, I need to kind of remind myself on a daily basis. Like it has never been easier to actually put political political education out in a way that is accessible, that's facts based, and that's what we should focus on. I guess when we know we have a whole global network of people not interested in political education and interested in pursuing harm, that in the face of that, it sometimes feels like an impossible task. Well, one of the problems with the internet is that it also spreads falsehoods equally well as it spreads information. When that potential is deliberately manipulated Mm -hmm. by everything from uh, political groups through to um, quite organized large political campaigns through to maybe state actors that are opposed to uh, democracy and the free flow of information. I mean, you know, the the strength of the internet is also its weakness. People are now very sophisticated, uh, some of them, in the ways they manipulate that potential. So, you know, there is a you know, there is, there is an upside and a downside to everything, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the sort of free flow of information without gatekeeping can also overwhelm people with information that is just not correct. Um, and the internet constitution? Ah, well, there, there are books on this. So there are, there are academics working on, you know, what are the digital rights mm. that need to be protected by legal frameworks? Um and, and, and some of them sound, you know, quite geeky, but, you know, should the people that provide internet service to your house be required, for example, to let you look at any website without putting costs on some websites and not others? Mm. Uh, for example, you know, which is a sort of common carrier responsibility. Um should you be able to use particular technologies to communicate online or should the state be able to regulate them? What and who should have a power of censorship Um, when there is harmful information online? Who is responsible for that and who gets to control it? These are all issues that we haven't really sorted out. And of course, they're all issues that cross state borders. And so that's very complicated. Mm. Um, A lot of it will end up being governed by patchwork national and subnational laws, um, but also by international treaties. And um, where that balance will land, I think, is still very much up in the air. So just thinking about the US Constitution and where we're at the moment. So um, Nicholas and I are uh, recording in August 2023. At the moment, Donald Trump, the previous um uh, president of the United States is possibly going to be put on trial. With his, he has been indicted. He's been indicted, and he. It feels like he's clutching at straws. But equally, there's some things within the U.S. Constitution which are maybe going to be protecting him. Well, it's interesting because 
when you say constitution there, yeah. you're not literally talking about the literal text. There's a custom in America yes. that, you know, if you are a candidate for office, that there that there is a certain cutoff when, you know, the judicial department or, or, or other sort of agencies in the state will normally back off because the because the spectacle of somebody running for office also being investigated for crime you know just seems to be too much in tension with the with the idea of democracy now that's nowhere written into the constitution um but donald trump has made the the argument in in courts in the last few uh days and weeks saying look all of these matters that i'm being indicted for should be put off until after the election because it's interfering with my ability to run for office and that should trump the um the the interest of the state in prosecuting me and if i've committed offenses um you know leave it till after the election of course there is also again not written into the u.s constitution but a very strong custom in america that um presidents have immunity from prosecution during their term in office again that's nowhere written into the constitution but is 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 felt as a very strong custom uh by many many people in america and so yeah i think there is a there is a sort of clock ticking uh to see whether any of these criminal trials will reach any kind of conclusion before a moment at which people will say, do you know what, it, it's just not good, it's interfering with the democratic process to continue with this prosecution in the middle of this election campaign. That's not a matter of written law, mm. but it is a matter of sort of doctrine. And it's, it, you know, we're going back to this sense that the constitution, the sort of moral political order, uh, that, that, stretches beyond the written text, even in America, where they have a single codified written text for the federal constitution. It's so much like subjectivity. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I, I promised... Interpretation. I, I promised myself not to be that that um, academic who says, ah, oh, well, of course, the roots of the word are. Yeah. But of course, co- constitution means, in a sense, that which is established, that which is agreed. Right. That which is agreed upon. Now you can codify that in a document, but that document is never going to completely capture the sense of the broader culture in society that says this kind of thing is legitimate and this kind of thing is not legitimate. So really, constitutions need to constitution needs to evolve, or does evolve in terms of how it's interpreted because time passes. Sure. Um, I mean, both, you know, courts have a role in thinking through whether language covers particular circumstances and constitutional orders can shift as courts change their mind. Mm-hmm. Think of the, the American Constitution has a prohibition on um, subjecting anyone to cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the standard for, for a cruel punishment or an unusual punishment? Um, is that different now? to 150 years ago right or to 200 years ago have we have we shifted our idea of what would be cruel you know there's there's that aspect but but also you know no constitution is 
self-enforcing requires on a broader political culture to give it life and that culture shifts and our, and our broad collective sense of what is and is not acceptable can shift as well think for example you know are we all right with politicians lying in public life you know if, if you're standing in a legislative body and you tell a deliberate lie but that's is that so something com- to be criticized but that's so commonplace now sure but in decades gone by even the appearance that you might have done this in britain for example could be a resignation offence you know so so you know in the sense that, that that ministers who had even inadvertently misled parliament occasionally resigned because they they had a they had a strong sense that the constitutional order depended upon that kind of and I guess just coming back to Britain now, thank you for yeah bringing us back here. I feel like alongside of the, constitu- the trans- trans- constitutional transformation of Brexit, we also have a um, transformation in terms of how politicians behave. And that has been quite something that's changed over the last sort of few years in terms of like misleading and lying. And it does feel like there are some significant sections of the public that are quote unquote comfortable with with this kind with this new kind of version of politics we have where politicians lie. Forty percent of Republican voters in the US are very comfortable with Donald Trump's style yeah. of politics. They they cheer him on as he is outrageous. Yes. And I mean, ultimately, if you if you live in a democracy and the people decide at a certain point, yes, we're comfortable with this, um, democratic institutions will give that expression. And and that will be the world in which in which you live. You get the governments you deserve. Sure. But, it's so depressing, but like... Well, is it? I mean, I mean, the alternative would be something else. You know, the, 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 the Chinese government at the moment um, has got an international campaign that not enough people are paying attention to to promote what they call the, the Chinese model of democracy. Right. And what they say is the... 18th and 19th century institutions of Europe and America that rely on an educated, moral public um, informing itself about issues, voting for representatives, and so on. That actually can't survive contact with the modern internet age. And actually, Mm -hmm. they say, you know, that it is the Chinese model of what they call democracy where... um, popular opinion at local level is filtered up through party organization to the government at the center and then you know people who are sort of insulated from um popular will uh on particular issues will make sensible decisions i mean the the chinese are now actively promoting this as an alternative way of thinking about democracy um 
So, you know, alternatives are available yeah. uh, to the idea that, you know, actually we get the politicians we, we would most like to have and, and we vote for them collectively, that there are other ways of organising society. And um, we should also remember that only a minority of people live in the world. Uh, sorry. We should also remember that only a minority of people living in the world live in states that we could really think of as democratic states. Coming back to thinking about democracy and the UK, so we are less than a year away from another general election. We've had this conversation about like about constitutions and political education and we get the we get the governments or the politicians that the majorities want or that people quote unquote deserve. So what do you see as happening to the future of the UK democracy, particularly over the next year or so? <laughs> I should say I'm a historian. My expertise is in understanding things that have happened, not Patterns. making not Patterns. making predictions for the future. Because uh, I still think it's really interesting, just for me as someone that's really passionate about political education, how few people understand or know about how first past the post works mm -hmm. and how it's quite an unusual system to have, particularly in Europe, and how that means that it's very difficult to allow for what I would say, democracy. Mm. Well, first past the post is, is interesting. America has first past the post for the same reason Britain does, which is it's, it's the sort of original, um, in a modern sense, form of voting. That is to say, you, do, you divide a political community up into districts and you say to each of those districts, pick somebody to go to the legislative assembly and act as your representative there. Um, if you draw the boundaries badly, either deliberately, as is often the case, uh, you know, Americans call it gerrymandering, deliberately draw boundaries to deliberately overweight the votes of particular um, political parties compared to their support in the general population. It's very easy for, or, or, or if you draw those boundaries um, badly just because you don't pay attention to what you're doing. It's very easy for a first-past-the-post system to um, produce a result that can be wildly out of sync with popular support for, for politicians running on particular party labels. And so um, uh, some of your listeners may remember a few years ago um, British electors had a, had a, had a choice to move to alternative vote, a system of ranked choice voting, um, which would still have been a constituency model, but which would have demanded that each each candidate for each constituency at least had a majority of votes cast, although, of course, counting second and third preferences the same as first plus preferences, you know, gets philosophically complicated yeah. quite quickly. Um, uh, but they, they voters had the choice to adopt that system, which which um, would have remedied some of the ways in which first past the post can get out of sync with a with a sort of party mandate. Mm. Um, but I, uh, you know, the voters chose to reject that. Um, 
I, I'm not sure I think there is going to be much appetite for changing the way the House of Commons is elected. What is more likely is that there is some constitutional change to do with the House of Lords, which uh, is currently in Britain um, mostly people nominated for life uh, by political parties um, and, and then a, a sort of residual number of seats for hereditary peers and for bishops and in that way is sort of this curious mix of 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 old and and newer <laughs> yes absolutely um so there may be more appetite for that but i but i but i i think in a way that that worrying too much about those issues can suck a lot of attention right away from much more important and immediate concerns because actually you know and, and unless some political earthquake happens, there will be a change of government after the next general election. And um, one of the one of the really peculiar things, uh, I don't know if you have more of a sense of this than I do, but I'm not really sure what their policy program is going to look like no. right now. Um, and and I'd much rather that we have a conversation about that especially in light of Brexit and all of these areas of life that, that they could be intervening in. Um, but actually, we're, we're not having that debate. We're not having that debate of what will a mandate for a new government translate into in terms of different social and economic policy. Um, so I, w- I would rather have a debate about that than about constitutional arrangements because I don't think we're currently in a place where the constitutional arrangements of the United Kingdom are going to frustrate a new incoming government from pursuing its ends and I don't think the constitutional arrangements are going to frustrate the election of that new government so sure we could argue about these theoretical things but maybe we should be more focused on uh, you know having a conversation now about what do we want uh, out of a new government in 18 months time that's such a solid analysis nicholas because it's like it is so everything is so chaotic politically but actually what i see you saying here is that look now is the time to ask for what we want now is the time to put the case forward for how we want our social and economic life to be Mm. amazing thank you so much for joining um, us Nicholas we are going to have you back on the show um, in a couple of months to talk about certain sections of the Quill project because there's lots particularly around both India and Northern Ireland that I think would be really important for listeners to learn about in terms of political education and constitution but thank you so much for actually a very hopeful conversation (laughs) well thank you so much for having me it's been a lot of fun Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.